You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 53, The Second Sino-Japanese War, Part 4, The Battle for Shanghai. This week, a big thank you goes out to David, Keanu, and R.S. Penn for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special patron-only episodes released once a month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more information. By the beginning of September, the situation was beginning to look very bad for the Chinese around Shanghai. Since the failed attacks of August 17th, the overall balance of forces and the positioning of those forces had done nothing but deteriorate as Japanese troops had landed north of Shanghai and proceeded to move inland. Even if the Chinese defenders had put up a very good showing in slowing the Japanese expansion of their beachhead, the fact remained that it had continued to increase in size and several important areas had been lost. In the area around Shanghai, as the fighting continued to expand, it took on a slow, grinding style. The areas that were being fought over north of Shanghai were generally rice and cotton fields, which provided little cover, and so most of the fighting would coalesce around specific villages, towns, and other geographical features. Fighting would continue throughout September and October before more Japanese reinforcements would arrive in November, which would finally and decisively shift the balance of power in favor of the Japanese, eventually resulting in a Chinese retreat. Throughout all of this fighting within the city, the situation continued to deteriorate. Thousands of people had become refugees during the fighting, either trying to escape the city or cramming themselves into the international settlement where there was some level of safety. Starting in late August, there would also be a cholera epidemic, which was just adding on to all of the previous problems. As fighting would continue all the way to November, inside the city, the hardship experienced by those trapped inside would continue to grow. During this episode, we will chat about all of the slow and steady fighting that would occur during September and October, all of which would be an integral part of bringing the fighting to a conclusion, even if it mostly resulted in a long series of attacks for both sides that failed to achieve their objectives. Last episode, we ended with the fall of Baoshan, two Japanese attacks, and today we will start off with the Japanese attacks that were launched out of this newly captured area with the intention of expanding it. These would be launched on September 11th by the Japanese 3rd and 11th Divisions, with the goal of clearing out the areas to the north of Shanghai and taking the villages of Yanghang and Yupu. If you look at the modern-day map of these areas, they are all well within the larger Shanghai metropolitan area, 
but in 1937 they were a bit more removed. Both of the Japanese divisions would be attacking on a very narrow area of the front, and they would concentrate their artillery as much as possible, along with air attacks, which were a fixture of Japanese efforts. The artillery barrage would begin in the early hours of the 11th, and then the attack would be launched, and it would once again result in a reasonably good advance. This had been the template for previous attacks. Nobody could doubt the fact that the Japanese had huge advantages when it came to fire support, and this often gave them a quick boost right at the beginning. But then, as the attack developed, it would avail them little when it came to actually pushing forward the attack beyond those initial gains. They could destroy everything in their path, like they would with Yupu, which was reduced to a pile of rubble. But as long as the Chinese defenders remained motivated and were willing to continue fighting, the defense often did quite well. While this was undoubtedly a success for the Chinese, there were still serious problems that the Chinese leaders did not have a good solution for. As Japanese pressure continued to mount on the roads out of Baoshan, the greatest concern was that if they were able to push through, they would, they would cause a breach between the troops within Shanghai and the 15th Army Group, which was to the north. This concern, along with the continued wastage of men in the forward units, caused the Chinese commanders to decide to pull back a few kilometers to defensive positions that had already been prepared. They were able to do this without the Japanese being aware, and the retreating troops would not be in any way harassed. Chinese commanders considered this retreat to be necessary, but it also handed a few key advantages to the Japanese. By surrendering so much territory, many of the problems caused by the relatively constricted area that they had previously been working with were now gone. It simply gave them space for troops and and supplies and a reprieve from the constant threat of being overrun. It also gave them access to several roads to connect up their various beaches that they had previously been occupying. During the first week of September, another round of discussions would occur back in Japan about the place of the fighting in Shanghai and the overall strategy of Japan in Asia. Many still considered it a secondary theater when compared to northern China, But that raised the question of whether it was better to send more troops to guarantee a quick end to the fighting. The eventual conclusion was that the goal should be to try and wrap up the fighting by early November at the absolute latest. And if that was the goal, then more troops would be required. There were already about 50,000 Japanese troops in and around Shanghai, but given the size of the area that they needed to capture and the growing Chinese resistance, that number would probably not be enough. This resulted in another group of three infantry divisions being prepared to leave the home islands to make their way to Shanghai. If the objective of taking the city by early November was to be realized, there were a few problems that the Japanese would have to address. First, they were having serious difficulty in the fighting to the north of the city, but unfortunately this was often out of their control. For example, any time it rained, the local roads, which were often just dirt paths, would turn into a muddy mess, which would seriously hinder the ability of troops and supplies to move forward. There were were ways to mitigate these problems, but until the Japanese were able to fight their way out of the terrain close to the rivers, there were no permanent fixes. Another problem was the continued presence of Chinese aircraft. Now, there were never enough Chinese fighters to attain anything close to air superiority, but there were at times enough of them to harass Japanese bombers as they tried to assist the troops on the ground. This was a problem that could be solved, and to do so, the Japanese would stage another bombing raid of Nanking. On September 19th, a force of naval bombers began their flight to Nanking. Their plan was to bomb the city at at around 10,000 feet in height. They would not really have a specific target in mind because their bombs would hit anything and it just didn't really matter what they hit. Instead, they were just involved to bring Chinese fighters into the air. 
where they would meet a large number of Japanese fighters that were positioned several thousand feet above the bombers. It would work perfectly. When the bombers came over the city shortly before 10 a.m., the Chinese fighters would come up to meet them, and they found overwhelming numbers of Japanese fighters waiting for them. It was a bloodbath. Most of the Chinese aircraft were destroyed, and more were damaged on the ground when the bombers then made a pass over their airfields. This one very successful mission would greatly reduce the ability of the Chinese to launch successful interdiction missions against the constant Japanese close air support provided to the troops on the ground. Before the next round of Japanese attacks, there would be a change within the Chinese command hierarchy. Zhang Zhizong was removed from command of the 9th War Zone and sent to command the 6th Zone in northern China. Chang would personally take command of the 3rd War Zone from its previous commander. Given the course of the battle for the Chinese, some movement of commanders should not have been a huge surprise to anyone. However, it posed some problems due to how the Chinese commanders interacted with their staff. Instead of a general leaving and someone else replacing him, a changing commanding officer also involved a full staff replacement, as the general staff went with him to his new command. This destroyed the continuity of command as the new staff got up to speed and established themselves in the new environment. All of these command changes were done by September 15th, at the same time that the Japanese were preparing their next set of attacks, which were originally planned to begin on September 20th. Fortunately for the Chinese, the attacks had to be delayed due to the difficulties that the Japanese were having in getting supplies into position. When the attack was launched, it would involve the 11th Division near Liodian, and it would also see one of the largest concentrations of Japanese armor to date. The initial attacks would do quite well. Up to this point, Japanese attacks had fallen into a pattern, and it would repeat here, where the Japanese would make some solid initial progress, like I mentioned earlier. But then Chinese counterattacks were able to reset some of that progress, generally at night. It rarely meant pushing the Japanese back to their starting point, but it often greatly reduced the total area that they gained in the attack. However, in this case, that pushback did not occur, and the Japanese were able to hang on to their new positions. This then compromised other Chinese positions on either side of the advance, and they were forced to order a withdrawal on September 25th to a position about a kilometer to the rear of their previous line. At the same time, the three divisions that had been dispatched to Shanghai in order to bring the troops up to five divisions were also beginning to arrive in the last days of September, which would bring the total number of Japanese troops up to 90,000. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. The plan was to use some of these new arrivals along with the 3rd Division in an attack with the primary objective being to cross the Wusong Creek. There would also be several other attacks in other areas of the front in order to divert from those crossing attempts. Wusong Creek was an important geographical feature and it represented one of the only two remaining natural areas that the Chinese could mount a defense against continued Japanese attacks, the other being Suzhou Creek. The diversionary efforts would begin on October 2nd, followed by the crossing on October 5th. Even against relatively strong resistance they did not really expect to encounter, they were able to make some headway which resulted in a stable if small bridgehead on the other side of Wusong. The Chinese leaders fully understood the importance of of the Wusong, and as soon as the attack began they committed all possible resources to the defense. More troops were brought in, and as much artillery as possible was put in place, which was about six artillery battalions, which were all detailed to the defense. These artillery guns were then protected by as many anti-aircraft guns as possible, which did enough to deter most Japanese aircraft from launching attacks on the artillery. During this period, a sense of desperation on the Chinese side sort of continued to grow. And this resulted in two decisions. The first was that once again the Chinese would retreat in some areas in an effort to shorten their total line of defense. In this case, it involved giving up the town of Luhong. The town had withstood um, several Japanese attacks, but was simply not worth the effort of defending any longer as other territory around it had been lost. The second decision was that troops were being thrown into the fighting as soon as they arrived in the Shanghai area. While this increased the number of men who were actually on the front lines, it also meant that units were thrown into combat before they were fully ready and organized, and it also prevented the Chinese from being able to mount any large counterattacks. Both of these decisions were made simply due to the feeling of crisis, which would continue until October 11th when Chang would host a meeting with staff and commanders of the Third War Zone to try and bring the situation back under control and to rebuild some confidence. The Japanese attack, while looking very threatening to the Chinese, was having problems of its own. The largest issue was the fact that it started raining, and then did not stop raining for more than a week. And this turned everything into a muddy mess, and just made everything more difficult, from moving supplies to actually attacking. When the crossing had been made, there was real optimism among Japanese officers that they'd finally cracked the Shanghai front, but this quickly, once again, evaporated leading General Matsui to write, quote, It's obvious that earlier views that the Chinese front was shaken had been premature. Now it's definitely not the time to rashly push the offensive. The first two Japanese divisions, which had been fighting heavily for weeks, were also experiencing heavy attrition, and most importantly, heavy attrition among the least replaceable members of the units, officers and NCOs. Even in the cases where the number of men who'd been put on the casualty list were replaced with a similar number of replacements, the total combat strength of those units would decrease as unit cohesion took a big hit and the overall level of experience dropped. While both sides considered their respective positions far from ideal, the Chinese were beginning to plan for another counterattack to try and 
rectify the situation, this time using fresh troops in the form of four divisions that had recently arrived from the Guangxi province. All four divisions had been in northern China, and they'd been fighting there, but they'd been brought south specifically to be used in the defense of Shanghai. Instead of being totally on the defensive, they would instead be used for an attack on October 21st. Their artillery preparations for the attack would begin at 7 p.m. on the 21st, with the infantry going forward an hour later. Launching the attack late in the evening was a change in the Chinese operating pattern, and a change built around the assumption that during the day, any Chinese attack would be very vulnerable to Japanese air attack. They hoped that by attacking just before nightfall, they would, they would have all night to advance before the Japanese planes, which could not be prevented from entering the skies above the battlefield, could come into play. When the attack began, there was some good progress, but it quickly began to bog down. The core problems were the same problems that both sides would experience. There were a lot of small waterways, which made it challenging to quickly move large quantities of men and supplies anywhere. The Japanese were not completely surprised by the attack, as they had noted the large buildup of forces behind the Japanese front in the days before it began. The overall lack of progress brings us back to the challenges that the Chinese would find during the day, which forced them to stop attacking before dawn so that they had time to dig in and find some protection from the coming air attacks. At dawn, the Japanese would launch their counterattacks with devastating results. Whole Chinese units would find themselves isolated by Japanese attackers, and they could not really do anything about it during the day due to Japanese air superiority. Over the next two days and nights, the same process would repeat. Chinese attacks during the night, which would capture some territory, make some progress, Japanese counterattacks during the day, where they would take most of it back. By the end of the 23rd, the Chinese units who had been used in the beginning assaults and had been involved ever since were exhausted and had suffered thousands of casualties, with somewhere around 60% of soldiers in most units that were in that opening assault being killed or wounded just 48 hours later. The failure of the attacks by the Guangxi divisions would be an important turning point for the entire Shanghai campaign. It had been a major Chinese effort, it had exhausted a large group of reinforcements, and it had achieved essentially nothing. Soon, news began to filter back to Japanese headquarters that the Chinese units were thinning out their forward units, and there was a suspicion that this meant that they were planning to once again pull back. As soon as this information was received by General Matsui, he moved into action. There were plans to meet with all of his unit commanders in the afternoon of October 24th, but instead he directly telephoned everyone and told them to attack immediately, with the promise that written orders would arrive a few hours later. Matsui's fear was that the Chinese would once again be able to retreat and would be able to once again solidify on a new defensive position before the Japanese could react and take advantage of the disorder inherent in any large-scale troop movement. The Japanese attacks would begin at 9am, and the 3rd and 9th divisions would make some quick and easy advances, advances that would continue into the next day as the Chinese continued their movement. This pullback was seen as essentially mandatory on the side of the Chinese. The units that had participated in the attacks the week before were simply spent and had to have some rest, but to gain that breathing space, the only option was to give up territory. They would continue to pull back until they would occupy the Suzhou Creek, the last natural obstacle that remained in front of the Japanese. Even with Japanese pressure, they were able to occupy defensive positions on the south side of the Suzhou, which once again provided some amount of stability to the front. This position was not a long-term solution, though, because it was basically the last line of defense, and if it was lost, the entire Chinese position in Shanghai would fall apart. 
The vulnerability that this caused really called for a larger retreat, um, and the Chinese officers who were already kind of agitating for a larger retreat, including just giving up Shanghai altogether, would continue to rise. They would continue to agitate further. Chang was still completely against such an idea, though, and wanted to continue the fight for every square foot of area in and around Shanghai. However, many of his generals were going concerned, not just about the vulnerability of their positions, but also just the fragility of the morale of their units. Here is Peter Hampson from Shanghai 1937, Stalingrad, on the Yangtze. Most soldiers saw the odds of survival heavily stacked against them, but in spite of frequent visits to the front, Chiang Kai-shek knew very little about this. Officers who were aware of the real conditions in the trenches were also familiar with the Supreme Commander's stubborn character and his determination to stick to the defense of Shanghai to the bitter end. Under the circumstances, they found it inadvisable to break the truth to him. It was a charade that could not go on forever. In some units, the situation was getting so desperate that it was only a matter of time before the soldiers would simply leave their positions. End quote. Regardless of the arguments presented, Chang would not be dissuaded from his belief that fighting should continue. While a larger withdrawal was out of the question, there were some small adjustments to the Chinese lines. For example, they moved out of the Zabe district inside the city. But as long as there were still troops inside Shanghai, the defensive line on the Suzhou was absolutely critical. If it was lost, the troops in Shanghai to the north ran the risk of being completely surrounded. In the last days of October, the Japanese were preparing to do exactly that, and they had assembled a group of small boats that they would use to cross the creek. On November 1st, the attack was launched, and they would succeed in establishing a secure bridgehead on the other side. It may have been possible in the early moments to destroy the bridgehead when it was weakest, but this advantage was not able to be capitalized on. Many of the Chinese officers closest to the front were hesitant to take independent action. Over the following days, the Japanese would continue to push troops across and to expand their presence, with the bridgehead eventually reaching a half a mile in width. Within this perimeter, they were able to construct some quick defenses that made any Chinese counterattacks doomed to fail. While the position was secure, and it had achieved its primary objective of getting the Japanese across the creek, it had also not achieved everything that was hoped, and the possibility of pushing forward and fully compromising the Chinese positions in the city was not something that it could do. The the Chinese were just too good at defending. This did not mean that there were not other plans to do just that, though. And it all came back to more additional divisions that were on their way to the Shanghai area. Back on October 10th, a new army had been created, the 10th Army, which was made up of three divisions and an independent brigade that were on their way to Shanghai. Two of the divisions were from the home islands, and the rest were from northern China. There were a few different ways that these troops could be used. They could just reinforce the Japanese units that were already present around Shanghai, but this was ruled out because it did not provide enough value. They could land on the south bank of the Yangtze, but this had been a possibility that the Japanese had been planning on for years, and so the areas around the river were were pretty heavily fortified. The final option, and the one that was selected, was to land on the north side of Hangzhou Bay, to the south of the city. There were some serious challenges involved in this landing site, for example some tidal issues due to the wide and flat beach and the waterways that crisscrossed the areas off the beach. But the greatest advantage would be the fact that the Chinese did not expect it, and that the landings were even partially successful and managed to gain a reasonable foothold on land 
they would very quickly compromise the Chinese positions in and around the city. With these advantages in mind, the operation was set to go forward on November 5th, and the final acts of the Battle of Shanghai were about to begin, which we will discuss next week. <laughs>